Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And we are here to talk about game design. This month, we are looking at positive feedback loops, which is the third in our sort of loops mini-series, having looked at core loops and time in episode 8, and inner and outer loops in episode 31 more recently. So positive feedback loops is a bit of a confusing term, because when you think about it, it sounds like these are always good things. But what this really means is that when you do something, it enables itself to happen more. A classic phrase of this is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer so if you have an advantage you press your advantage basically like it doubles down on your advantage if you're at a disadvantage well sucks to suck it's hard to get back up once you're down and it's easy to keep advancing once you've started absolutely the snowball effect uh in both directions right because sometimes you're the snowball snowballer and sometimes you're the snowball-y an easy thing to ask here is why would you want this in a video game because the knee-jerk reaction to this is is, well, don't you want to balance your game so that you don't have this happen so that there's a fighting chance all the time? And sometimes you don't, right? Like there is a lot of kickback against uh, Mario Kart rubber banding, for example, which would be the inverse of this, which is a negative feedback where the better you do, the more you get penalized. You want at least small amounts of this, like in a fighting game, if you get a good situation, you want to be able to press that event for a little while. Things should ideally return to a neutral state, but like that little bit of power helps you like accomplish more than a single thing at a time if you don't have any of these sorts of loops it really becomes a blow for blow kind of situation quite often and so positive feedback loops can be thought of as a payoff as in this is why you went to all the trouble in the first place you know you got the small advantage now you can press this advantage now you can press your you can use the the new advantage to press another advantage you can um, extract power fantasy out of your video game system. And that's oftentimes how this works. Um, when you're doing well, you start to feel like nothing can stop you. And obviously, there are scenarios where this works better than others. So in a single player experience, a positive feedback loop is just very good for empowering the player. Right? It's also good for teaching the player what not to do. Because remember, it works in the, in the negative sense as well of when you do a bad thing, more bad things happen. The poor get poorer. So you this greatly disinvents incentivizes gameplay that you don't want if you set it up correctly. Oh, and you can use it to incentivize the gameplay you do want by providing these sort of cascading rewards for the activity you want to encourage the player to do, even if it may not be things that are intuitively obvious to them. Once they do it once, they'll probably want to keep doing it. I I think we'll be able to, like, get the point across by just jumping straight into our first game. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 is a 2009 first-person military shooter developed by Infinity Ward, directed by Jason West, produced by Mark Rubin, and designed by Todd Elderman, Steve Fukuda, and Muhammad Alavi. This is probably a bit of a cheat entry. Uh, We'll we'll probably compare a couple of Call of Duty aspects, but we really want to talk about killstreaks here because that's a very good example of positive feedback. So before we jump into that, I almost jumped the gun here, (laughs) pun intended. Let's talk about what the gameplay is like. So we're specifically looking at the multiplayer aspect of Call of Duty, where you uh, form into sides of teams and 
you know, you have varying objectives such as taking points and or just straight up killing people. I think Call of Duty is more than many other shooters most famous for its death matches. Like when people talk about it, I think that's the default mode they expect from this game, even though it has other ways to play. And uh, that is absolutely the mode that we are, you know, contextualizing around right now. What is a death match? It is a, you know, a scenario where you're just kind of put in a in an environment and I'm like super vague in this because we have everything from urban environments to kind of like jungle outpost environments. And your goal is just to rack up kills, whether it's for a team in team deathmatch or individually as just, you know, deathmatch. And that leads us to, I guess we could we could talk about the fact that you shoot people with guns in this game. That's probably worth mentioning. If you aren't familiar with the Call of Duty series, you click on heads, which equates to shooting a gun. And uh, that's how you kill someone. But finally, let us get to the point here, which is what killstreaks are. So killstreaks are a reward for doing something very difficult, killing people sequentially without being killed yourself. And this is a really good reason to have a positive feedback loop in the game. You did something really difficult because death is quick in Call of Duty. You survived multiple encounters and you killed multiple people. Here's a reward. That reward is a killstreak. Each game has a different variation, but in Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, you can equip three killstreaks. Pre-chosen before the match starts. Yes. And each of them has a different property that might be like summoning a sentry turret, might be summoning attack dogs. Usually it's calling in something. So each killstreak has a number associated with it. For example, one of them might be a killstreak of three to get a supply chain. And I think the highest is like 25 for a tactical nuke. Correct. That instantly finishes the match regardless of where you were in the match. Yeah. It's a, it's a game over button. Yeah, 25 kills sequentially to get the tactical nuke. And these, in, in the important distinction in Modern Warfare 2 compared to the other games is that these cascade into each other. As in, if you get three kills, which gets you something, the kills that you get from that thing will also come into the next thing and so on and so forth. So you can combo the killstreaks into each other. Yeah, this is where the it's really positive, right? Like you get rewarded so much for staying alive and killing people, not just because you get a cool thing, but because the cool thing gets you more kills to potentially get your next cool thing. And just the killstreaks alone are a really fun reward mechanism. The issue here is how much they can cascade into each other because potentially if everything worked out in your favor, you could literally go from from a few kills that ends up securing you a position to literally win the match with your nuke. Now, I will add here, I think this is a good spot to say that uh, neither of us are versed in this game. <laughs> it's, it's an old game uh, with a multiplayer that we aren't particularly interested in engaging with. But academically, this is an amazing example of you know a positive feedback loop because this loops into each other, right? When you do well, you get something that enables you to do well. It just keeps snowballing. And killstreaks were introduced in Modern Warfare 1, I believe. And it was during this period, like this particular game is in the period of like Call of Duty's rise to incredible success. Like Modern Warfare 1 was Call of Duty finally hitting everyone. It was the game to emulate, both as like a narrative showcase at the time, but also as like a raw, great feeling shooter. 
And from there, like the game after Modern Warfare 2 hit 30 million sales, I believe, with Black Ops and with Modern Warfare hitting about 10 million, 15 million. So over the course of this mechanic being in the series, it doubled in popularity to an insane degree. So this mechanic resonates with people. It made them feel good about playing this game. So what I'm saying is just to emphasize, like this is a mechanic that people enjoyed. I'm going to attempt to talk about some of the specifics here with the caveat. I might be wrong on the specifics of the meta, but uh, for the most part, these are the principles of what we're going through here, right? Uh, in the case of Modern Warfare, there is this empowerment feeling of I got to, I'm looking at this list, let's say seven killstreaks and I got the attack helicopter. And that feels really good because now I get to just use this attack helicopter. There is still counterplay from the other players. It's not like this is an impossible um, advantage to overcome because you can still shoot down this attack helicopter. It is an entity in the world that is interactable with your primary mode of interaction, which is bullets, potentially rockets. Don't actually think there are, but you know, you, you can shoot down the attack helicopter that is the kill streak of someone else. It also encourages a sort of dynamic narrative in the game. Like if we're doing free for all deathmatch, not teams, mm-hmm. suddenly if I notice, oh, someone got the airstrike, the five kill streak from Call of Duty for Modern Warfare, we want to really hunt down that player before they get two more kills. Mm. And so it creates this narrative around, oh, we need to work together to shut down this thing so we can get on to fighting normally. Mm. And so it creates this constant shifting of who is the target, who is the person we want to fight, which is really interesting and engaging, especially in more free-for-all contexts, which can feel a bit random. I say not really playing first-person shooters at all. Yeah, like this is definitely a point that the designers have thought about because a lot of these killstreaks don't highlight your position to other players. Not not overtly, at least. You know, you don't get lit up through the map and through walls when you deploy this kill. You when you deploy killstreaks in this game, as far as I'm aware, at least. And like for in the two examples we we mentioned, there an airstrike or the attack helicopter, like it creates an entity that is separate from the player that the um, user doesn't necessarily have to put themselves in too much danger to use. Um, so long as they can, you know, find a safe place to deploy, so to speak. And it's interesting that in Modern Warfare 2, the game we're focusing on, actually a lot more of these killstreak rewards do effectively give away your position. Mm. So one of them is a care package at four um, kills, which obviously you need to be there to pick up. Another might be a sentry gun, which of course you need to place it somewhere. Someone may notice, oh, he might be up there if they see the sentry gun being placed and things. So lots of de- design space for this, but that's basically the the point, the thrust of it is just building up this advantage over time through combat, through running and gunning. I think it's worth saying like in Modern Warfare 2 and older games, killstreaks ramped up into each other. Mm. And in the very next game after Modern Warfare 2, the one we're focusing on, they didn't include that cumulative thing. So if you use a kill streak, it sort of resets your counter back basically. So I think they noticed that it was a little too much how much it ramps up. So for example, in Modern Warfare 2, our highest kill streak is at 25 and the second highest is 15. The next game's highest kill streak reward is 11, significantly less. So yeah, that's sort of classic example of positive loops and positive feedback loops and that sort of escalating reward. And our next game,
Torchlight 2 is a 2012 loot-driven action RPG often compared to Diablo, developed by Runic Games and designed by Travis Baldry. So Torchlight 2 is a sort of a real-time um, ability-based action game with RPG elements. So you click on enemies to make them explode with your weapons. You have a hotbar of skills that you can activate, as well as one that you can activate with a right click that you level up as you play the game and make sort of specific RPG-like builds. It's very frenetic compared to Diablo 2 and 1 especially. Diablo 3 also has this sort of similar kind of almost arcade intensity of combat. But what's interesting about Torchlight 2 is that compared to some of the other games in the genre, every class had a charge bar, basically, of some kind. That would fill as you play and succeed in certain requirements. We're going to speak really narrowly today about the Ember Mage, which is my favorite class in this game because I like magic and so I'm just boring like that. But the Ember Mage is your basic sort of wizard class in an RPG. This means that they're really good at high damage. They've got a lot of versatility quite often, but are generally very frail and generally have to be much more cautious about their resource usage than other classes. Because they're physically Physical attacks are meant like they're like default always present attacks are uh, a bit weaker than another classes. They don't pack as much punch in an average hit physically, but make up for it by the fact that their spells are, you know, very powerful, can be used quite often. However, do drain a finite resource. Hmm. So your options are either to burn money to maintain doing this with mana potions or to take breaks periodically. So there's always this feeling that you are consuming a lot to keep going with this character. But they have an ability, the charge bar. Um, when it's fully charged, they don't need to spend MP for a little while. So this gives you a moment where you can use all your best abilities to really just rip through whatever you're fighting at the time. But because you're not spending any MP, you are passively regaining any MP you've spent, which is usually going to be when this triggers most of it. Rowan, how do you build the charge bar? How do you build the charge bar? You build the charge bar by attacking things using your magic. Is it specifically on kill? Do you remember? If it, is it specifically on kills that builds Ooh, the Ooh, that is a really good question that I should have checked. <laughs> Unfortunately, like thing, things I, die so often in Torchlight. I, I don't think it is specifically on kill. I, I think it is actually on damage because you can still build charge. Yeah, I think it's damage because it works on bosses. If it didn't, if it only did on kill, then it would make bosses much more frustrating because you wouldn't get this to trigger. Yeah. Although a lot of bosses do summon a lot of minion. Anyway, let's <laughs> say for now that it is on damage and we will correct us if yeah. Please correct us on social media if we are incorrect. Yeah, we're, we don't have, we're not going to do this research. Please, our loyal listeners, do the work for us. Tell us if we are wrong. That's what fans are for, telling you when you're wrong. Guide us back to the path. <laughs> anyway, so we have this system that lets you ignore the one weakness of your character for a while. And this gives you a great power trip while getting you ready for going back to normal. When you finish this, you will have a full MP bar generally, which means that you can go back to pressing your advantage, which helps you get another charge bar full, mm -hmm. which helps you keep going. Now, game designers are uh, smart people. So by default, you do not have enough resources to go drain all of your MP, create one charge, which then re replenishes your MP to create another charge. Like by default, that's not going to happen. And that won't but you can get to that. But you need really specific builds and to invest a lot of resources that you could put into raw power or other interesting skills. 
So there is this interesting trade-off for consistency or just like burst output. And, you know, what we said before about mana potions, that's not a one or the other thing. That could be a supplement. A mana potion could bridge the gap into a full charge, for example. And this basically creates lots of interesting ways to play a character around the central mechanic of the Ember Mage's charge bar that, you know, allows, like, let me exaggerate a bit, godlike destruction for brief moments. I would say that that's not an exaggeration, especially when you get towards endgame. And some of this is designed, when we're talking about, you know, systems like loops like this, and specifically in, in feedback loops, a lot of the game's, like, subtle things matter here. So in this case, the, the feedback loop reward, the positive feedback reward is you get this moment of, I can cast anything what is another possible restriction here? Well, cooldowns. You know, sometimes an ability has a cooldown that prevents you from casting it, even if you have the resources to do so. So the Ember Mage is actually designed with where a lot of the abilities have none or little cooldowns to make it to take advantage of the fact that you have this charge so that you don't find yourself in a position where you blew a big cooldown to go into charge and then now you have no big skill to pay off. It's also worth saying that like one of the extra benefits of this charge ability is that sometimes in these games, these sorts of games you can do an encounter and maybe you just sort of wander aimlessly maybe you got a bit hurt so you go back to town to sell off items the charge bar goes down ticks down very slowly when you're not engaged in combat when you're filling up and it's not so fast that like you have to rush that like if you finish a combat with a half full gauge the next combat will have nothing in it every time like it's a slow tick down but it's enough that whenever you finish a combat you'll probably have enough in your bar that you think i should really find the next combat so I can maybe come in with a full MP gauge and a half-filled bar to get to use this without needing to burn a potion. And sometimes you find yourself in a position where I got full charge near the end of a combat sequence. Maybe there's one thing left. Am I going to stand around and kill this one thing or am I going to rush off and explore more of the map to find the next small pack to really you know, take advantage of the charge bar? And one of the cool things, actually, that the MMH has to... Because that moment does happen in every game that has a bar like this. The MMH actually has a teleport that uses MP that, with the charge bar filled, doesn't. Even if you are in the worst situation where you don't get that big power trip, you do get, like, a good little while of just being able to teleport like a madman for a little while. And it's really fun. Scouting matters in a game with procedurally generated maps where you don't always know where everything's going to be. It's not just a race to the end. You are actually trying to find something. You're looking for a specific area. You're looking for an exit. You're looking for a boss or an elite or something like that. Mm -hmm. And even just being able to traverse around, even if you don't get to use big explosive spells by the time you get there, still useful. And so yeah, this positive loop is like very small compared to Call of Duty. Um, Like it's it is helping you like maintain and be ready for things, but it's really a positive loop that's more just power fantasy empowerment. And it also pushes, quote unquote, fun gameplay, right? And I have that in quotes because one of the goals of your game design is to push players towards what you consider to be the funnest way to play. Most of the time, most of the time, people who make games want to create a fun experience. And sometimes there is this tug of war between a fun experience and a safe experience. Um, human beings are risk averse creatures. We don't like to take risks where we don't need to. So we have to fight against that nature of I can just be safe and go back and heal. But you know, that takes so much time. It breaks the flow of the game so much. 
in a bar like this, a charge bar with this kind of mechanic means that you want to just keep pushing this advantage you're building for yourself. And then this advantage naturally feeds into another advantage for yourself. So let's just keep pushing then again, you know? It encourages you to play as is most fun, pressing lots of buttons. Because it is the amount of stuff you can put on screen, particularly with the Ember Mage, is kind of absurd. You can have lightning bolts and fire pillars and teleports and all sorts of things going on at once. Really pretty. And, And it's really satisfying. And even just like the most boring basic thing of like just hammering on your basic magical attack that you learned at level one, but just doing it as much as possible is incredibly satisfying. Even the most boring version of it is satisfying. Yeah, and then that's, again, credit to the game's design, right? They know that at some point in the game as an Ember Mage, you're going to be spamming out these abilities. And so one of the things, I think one of the basic attacks is like prismatic bolts or something like that. Yes, which my builds always focus around because it's really fun and silly. Yeah, there's a, there's a small amount of like RNG and randomness associated with them. But one of the important things is that the way Prismatic Bolts scale up, it's not by increasing damage on each one, which they do. They do get more damage. But a key aspect of it is that you fire more Prismatic Bolts to make mm. it more of a spectacle. So yes. that when you do hit charge, you get to just have a fireworks show. So, sometimes the actual fire too. <laughs> sometimes actual fire too. Like I, I guess the point I want to hammer home here is that a positive feedback loop can be a small thing, such as just as you fight, you build this bar. When the bar is full, you can fight better, which then allows you to fight longer. That's very simple. But what are the supporting things around that? Well, let's make fighting itself satisfying. Let's make spamming of a lot of skills in a small period of time visually pleasing, right? That's all of those things go into the positive feedback loop that we're talking about here. And I think with that, like, this is a feedback loop that's really designed to empower players. I think our next game is very much doing the opposite. Darkest Dungeon is a 2016 dungeon diving horror-themed RPG developed by Red Hook Studios, directed by, and I apologize for potentially mangling a name here, uh, directed by Chris Borassa, produced by and designed by Tyler Sigmund. So Darkest Dungeon it has a lot of different elements to it, but it is a dungeon diving focused game where you manage a town and many adventurers as opposed to a small party you maintain for the whole experience. And the dungeon exploration is relatively simple compared to other RPGs. And it has sort of bouts of combat in those exploration sequences. There's a lot of management going on with like food, rations, torches. A lot of resources. And a lot of these resources all revolve around this core mechanic of sanity. That is the positive loop that we're going to talk about in this game. The positive feedback loop, I should say. So... We brought up at the top of the episode that not all positive feedback loops are positive for the player. Sometimes it is about a bad decision or a bad outcome leading into more bad outcomes. And this is, we feel, a game that is really good at nailing that in. Because doing well in this game isn't necessarily going to push an advantage for you. It just means you're staving off a disadvantage coming down the line. And that's important because a disadvantage in this game, as hopefully you'll understand as we talk through this, snowballs into more bad things happening. Before we get too much into that, I want to say like Darkest Dungeon is explicitly about that. When you boot up the game, every time you boot up the game, it gives you this very explicit message that this game is about making the most of bad situations, which I'm not sure I like that phrasing, but it is about engaging with bad situations at the very least. Yeah. And all these systems feed into ensuring that sometimes bad things happen. And the key of that is stress. So stress is a meter that fills up slowly as bad things happen, whether that's exploring a terrifying dungeon in the darkness 
whether it's seeing something bad happen or watching a friend go crazy, stress stacks up. When stress reaches a certain point, it can trigger afflictions and sometimes virtues. So when an affliction occurs, a character gains a negative status effect that causes other people to become more stressed as well as they might act somewhat differently, whether that's they won't listen to you, they'll deny healing. There are all sorts of different negative outcomes that make continuing the adventure more difficult, which means that other characters might also get more stressed and also might suffer afflictions. So this means that once something bad happens, once someone is pushed over the edge, there is a great chance that someone else might be pushed over the edge. Which means that once one of these bad things happens, a lot can go wrong. Now, a very simple and like small example, very small example in, in the scope of this game is one of the things that can happen when someone is stressed is they might just pass their turn, which seems reasonable, right? Yeah. But in a game where every action matters so much, <laughs> that starts to stack up what if that turn pass was potentially finishing off an enemy that was going to deal even more damage what if that pass was giving up on a heal that could save a party member so this is how the the game pushes an advantage on you as a player and you are forced to react to these increasingly bad situations and the game is somewhat generous in that characters can permanently die in this game like that is a thing that can happen but going to zero hp doesn't actually kill you this is is the one nicety that the game gives players i think that is really important to such an otherwise punishing system the death storm mechanic is that every time you get hit on zero hp you have a chance of dying you know you might survive a hit or three at death store but maybe not like a full combat at death store that's a bit unlikely and it's kind of like a fixed buffer point right if you have even one hp above zero you're not at death's door yet but the next hit puts you at death's door and then you're back in that same position and every time you you hit death's door i believe you gain a stacking debuff for the rest of the dungeon run, the, that the dive sounds that right but i'm not sure offhand well at least the first time you hit death's door you have a you gain a debuff for the rest of the dive mm -hmm. and so let's yeah let's talk about like design decisions again here right when you have a mechanic that's like this that's that's so punishing is escape always free is is fleeing from a battle always free i don't know i don't think fleeing from a battle is not but fleeing from a dungeon I'm not going to say free, and the only reason why I'm not going to say free is to go into a dungeon, you have to Correct. spend resources on food and things, and you don't get to keep all those things. So it is possible to do dungeon runs that ultimately end at a deficit, because if at the end of a run... So stress maintains between runs. Yep. So you can spend resources to de-stress characters. This is why you manage more than just one party. So that mm. you leave people behind in town for a full week to de-stress yes. by gambling, drinking, praying, meditating, etc. Um, and each run counts as one week. That's a very sensible system. It encourages lots of party diversity and lots of interesting builds, which is really cool. And something that RPGs actually really struggle with in general. Encouraging players to genuinely invest in lots of different parties and builds. But anyway, um, the point for this specific system is that sometimes leaving a run can put you at a deficit and with characters being able to permanently die as well if your strongest character dies that snowballs into well now you don't have enough money to get everyone back to full status again now you don't have the same power to go and do more dungeon diving and progressing the overall objectives of the game you have to build up other characters. This is mitigated somewhat in that the town is actually your main form of progression. Yep. The better you build your town, the better your characters can get more easily. Like discounts will make it easier to bring up older characters. 
the caravan progressively the average level of adventurers will go up as you play so that means that you're, you're not starting from zero as much yeah but players because this is one of the important things there's a difference between how a player feels about losing a character versus the town helping them build up characters even if you haven't lost that much, quote unquote, it feels like you've lost a lot because you spent a lot of time with Harry the Vestal or whatever they might be mm-hmm. throughout your experience. And it feels like you invested a lot in them, even though bringing someone up to their level won't actually be that hard yep. in theory. And and in a lot of cases, getting someone fresh off the wagon, like almost literally in this game, um, might result in a cleaner character just because they'll have less potential afflictions at that point. Because it's worth noting that characters over the course of the campaign, not only do they have like the hit a stress meter, gain an affliction in the run, some of them are permanently modified as well. Like from that point onwards, there's always a chance that they will be a kleptomaniac and investigate a treasure chest first before anyone and things like that. But a fresh person out of the caravan doesn't have those things. And this is supposed to be like a thematic element of the game. Like you are supposed to abandon characters and once they're too difficult to manage and unruly to manage. And that is like an intended sort of narrative consequence of these systems that the life of an adventure is hard and it ruins people. And do you invest absurd amounts of resources to fix broken people or do you just discard them and bring on new people? It's a really interesting thematic element that these systems generate through this positive feedback loop. Which feels so negative to the player. Yeah, it is the most negative feedback, positive feedback loop. Because that phrase positive feedback is a terrible bit of language usage because it sounds like, oh, Blue, you did that last section of the podcast really well. That's what positive feedback sounds like. Yeah. Not Darkest Dungeon. (laughs) Yeah. We said a lot. Do we have anything more to add here? I, I think I'm done. Yeah. Uh, there's a small, I mean, sort of an extra bit of this sort of thing. One of the interesting things about these, the systems in this game is the power of positioning. Mm-hmm. So when a character dies in the party configuration, that alters the positioning of the party. Mm. So already it's a bad situation when someone dies. By altering the party positioning, you actually end up with certain characters that might not be able to use all their skills because yep. certain skills can only be used in certain positions yeah. or in certain positions relative to the enemy. Correct. So it's just another way the game like stacks the odds against you once something goes wrong. Yeah. It, it chips away at the control you have and really makes you aware that you weren't as in control of this game as you thought you were. All the best planning you could have had and all the smarts that you could have put into it. There's just this much. It's only this much that the enemy needs to do to make it all crumble around you. And of course, as you get familiar with the game, you start to learn what the enemy can and cannot do and start to be able to mitigate that. But you're never able to prevent bad things. Things from happening to you in this game. Mm. And you just learn how to manage them better. Yeah, which is, as we mentioned before, the core conceit of the game. You will always be in a bad situation. How do you make the best of it? Mm. And I think let's move on to our next game then. Slay the Spire is a 2019 released run-based deck builder developed by Megacrit and developers Casey Yano, Anthony Giovanetti, and Danielle Jenkins. Not the first time we've talked about Slay the Spire on this show. However, let's just quickly go over how the game plays. You start with a deck of about 10 cards. You yeah, about two hands worth. Two hands worth. Uh, yeah, I think 10 cards. You uh, Combat is decided by drawing a random hand of five by default, and then playing cards, which are either you know normally just attack, defend, 
uh, defend just gives you a certain amount of armor to block the next X amount of damage that comes through. And then on top of that, you just have lots of customization and a lot of extra mechanics that isn't super relevant to what we're going to be talking about today because we are focused in terms of the positive feedback loop of both ways being a good and a bad thing of how runs snowball in Slay the Spire off of seemingly small decisions. That mm. was a sentence. That was a sentence and a half. And I apologize for that. No, that's fine. You're spo- it's a podcast. We're supposed to say sentences. It's one of the key defining features of the medium. But when you squeeze a sentence and a half into a sentence, that's a, it's a bit much. Anyway, to the Spire. So let's start with just decisions in Slay the Spire are both more meaningful and less meaningful than you might imagine. So less meaningful because when you do things like add a card to the deck or remove a card from the deck, you're affecting one, uh, you know, a number by one effectively, right? Yeah, you're affecting like, oh, you add one card to your 10 card deck, you've changed the odds by, you know, however many percent, math. About less than 10%, right? Yeah, less than 10%, you've changed the odds by forgetting any of those individual cards. In the order that you want, in the timeliness that you want and stuff like that. However, there are interesting breakpoints here. And this is where it's more meaningful than you might think. So going from a 10 card deck to an 11 card deck means that after your second hand of five cards, you know technically exactly what that last 11th card is going to be uh, the, or the first card in your third hand. That's a guarantee now, right? And so these guarantees of when am I going to see a card becomes less of a sure thing as your deck increases in size. Why does this matter, you might ask? Well, one of the things that you want to aim to do in an RNG-based game, the RNG here being what kind of cards you're drawing and when, is consistency. The more cards that you have in your deck, the less consistently you will find a specific card you're looking for at any given time. And any given time can be a number of turns in Slay the Spire. Like it would be good to get, for example, powers are passive effects that run for the rest of the combat encounter you're in. Well, if it's a passive effect that's going to run for the duration of the combat, it might be good to get it early in the combat as opposed to later when it's going to be less impact, correct? Yes. And so how consistently will you draw it in your first few hands? If you only have 10 cards, you're going to see it within two hands. But if you have 20, it could be in your fourth hand. It could be in the fourth turn, which might be too late to make a difference. Hmm. And like in the early encounters in Slay the Spire, they can be not the longest encounters. Some of the boss encounters, it may not matter whether you get it in the second or fourth turn, but you obviously want it in that second turn if you can. Yeah. So how is this more impactful than you might think? Well... It means that when you make a decision to get, for example, a power, this passive effect, early, it might not matter to your early fights. And if it doesn't matter to your early fights, that means that you might be giving up the ability to end a fight early and save yourself damage, which builds up across the game because you don't like healing is a luxury in Slay the Spire and could prematurely end a run. But if you don't make a decision like this to get this power, you may not be able to get this card down the line. And then, you know, when it would be impactful later in the game, where you could have tools to make it consistent, it may not be anymore. So, And deck builders are really hard for this reason. Like, it's very hard to feel like an early choice makes a lot of impact. But the more you understand it, the more that you, like, see the matrix and see these odds work out. I think this happens across any deck builder, whether it's Slay the Spire, Puzzle Strike, Dominion, or anything like that. But it's really hard to see this early on. But one of the benefits both ways to this system is that I think in the first section of Slay the Spire, you're generally going to be fine, even if you're making lots of bad choices. 
like not necessarily like great, but like you'll be generally fine. Yeah. But it does sort of come to a head in the second section where if your deck isn't really functioning well, you will quickly know. And so Slay the Spire through being punishing at that point in the thing helps you, I think, identify whether you make good choices or not without taking forever to get there. Because in sometimes in RPGs, customization can take hours before the game reveals to you actually ice spells are terrible in this game or something but in say spy you're gonna like find out within about 10 15 minutes how efficiently you're making choices or not it's not always good at telling the player you should have made different choices but like it's at least telling you your deck isn't good depending on how aware you are of the language of games you may or may not see it right you may or may not see the causation here Mm. Because as we said, these choices are less meaningful than you might think. And so they don't make an impact on you consciously of like, this is a turning point. But very often, the, you know, first to fifth cards that you pick up are turning points in your deck and can dictate the direction that your deck ends up taking, barring very drastic events, which can happen in the game where you get to like alter large portions of the deck at once. Those first few cards kind of dictate how much you are going to want, for example, card draw, because you're going to be slow. And if you want card draw, that means you want cheaper cards to be able to play them with less mana or less action points, I should say. Uh, Or if your deck is going to be able to be consistent, which means that you can do powerful things because you've gotten like reasonably powerful cards early. And so you're looking to make it more consistent. In deck builder language, this means that you might be able to pass on adding cards to your deck and that be the correct choice. Because you keep deck size down, which makes it more consistent in the long run. That's a hard lesson to convey to players. And because this lesson occurs primarily through in the second section, because as Rowan said, getting through the first section, you can make quite a few mistakes and still beat the first boss. And you only really hit the limitations in the second section. You might think that, oh, I played the second section wrong. Maybe some of the choices I made with the deck was wrong there. But whether or not you realize that maybe I wasn't given the opportunity to play well in the first place, that is based on how well you understand language of games and specifically in this case the language and meta knowledge of deck builders and i think one of the difficult things for slay the spire in a lot of these games is that you only can really read the negative feedback loop sorry the positive feedback loop in the negative state yeah yeah uh, language um you can only read that when you really understand what a good deck looks like and slay the spire doesn't like offer you examples of good decks you have to see them in action. And once you do see a good deck in action, like, oh, okay, that's what the game should feel like. I now see the positive feedback loop working against me in this deck. I need to fix it or just accept this run's going to be terrible. But the game doesn't really communicate this to you until you get that first good deck, which is really hard to do when you're first playing a game like this. And as well, that good deck can look a lot of different ways. There isn't just one good deck. There are many good decks per class. Yeah, most classes have, what, three main builds, quote unquote? Yeah, varying viability. But yeah, absolutely. And of course, like you can mix and match all sorts of things within those builds. Yeah, there's generally some things you're aiming for. So like one of the Slay the Spire's strengths is its diversity and and its great variance in play run to run however in the context of its positive feedback loop of when you do well you can snowball into continuing to do well if you know how to make these choices or what's probably more likely is when you make a small bad choice and you continue to make these small slightly incorrect evaluations every time you're given a card choice then that starts to add up and it's you know unfortunately slay the spire is not a perfect game uh as much as it would be cool 
And this is one of its failings. It's that it's hard to see where you fail unless you have this meta knowledge that you can bring into the game. Mm, it's almost insidious, like how easy it is to make bad choices that will yeah. ruin you potentially an hour down the line. But even when you have these this meta knowledge coming in, it's still hard. So I guess like that's, you know, coming back from full circle of like, there's still enough depth that you can't just solve the game by going to study how deck builder theory it works. Because a lot of that is like, you know, this seems like a good choice now, but actually all the rest of the cards, the rest of the campaign are poison cards. So that kunai card is really bad for or you. Or you're going to meet just the right enemies that are going to punish you for playing lots of cards in a turn and you should have gone for very like tight um, action point heavy turns and in the meeting the challenge episode which has a number um i'm sure we looked at this game in context to its bosses and how some of the bosses just hard counters like you could have made all the right choices the positive feedback loop could be well in your favor you could be steamrolling the entire section and then just get the poison immune bus and that's it or not yeah, immune well, not, but not poison immune but like something that like gets rid of status effects very uh, efficiently yeah so and that's just it. It's just it. Uh, super fascinating game to talk about. Always a pleasure whenever we get to talk about Slay the Spire on Platforms and Pitfalls. So hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, and with that, let's look at our last game, our ultimate game. Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 is a 2011 3v3 tag team fighting game developed by Capcom and Ating, directed by Hiroyuki Nara, Go Usuma, and Ryota Nitsuma. And much like Slay the Spire, this is also always a pleasure to talk about, but we haven't actually done that yet for this show. Um, so, Marvel vs. Capcom 3 is a tag team fighting game, and this is very specific in terms of what it means for fighting games. So that mm-hmm. means that on screen, at a given time, there are two active fighters, each controlled by one player. And they can swap out these characters in various situations, and they can sometimes summon in for a short time a second character to do an attack, do an assist attack. And the various attacks can also be used to change up characters, so you can combo character A's super into character B's super and also change out the characters at the same time and things. So it's not quite fighting with three characters at a time, but the team aspect of it is very important because being able to call in a character for just an attack, which in this game is called an assist, means that you can do things like make yourself safer, continue a combo that should have ended, or just build space while you do something else. Set up, for example. Yeah, and characters are really diverse. Um, In the tag team fighters like this, generally everyone has really big tool sets. I don't want to say big. They have very few specific options, but what they do, they do very well. Mm-hmm. So that you don't get as many sort of jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none, even though there is a Ryu in this game. He feels much less all-rounder than he would in his normal Street Fighter incarnations. Mm. And I talked about not a perfect game before. Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3, I slurred that so badly, I apologize. Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3 is very far from a perfect game, and it's one of the reasons why it's so beloved by its community, because it allows really big and expressive play styles. But it kind of ties into what we're going to talk about here of like where the game has gone after 10 years now. <laughs> it's, it's 2021 as we're recording this to date this episode. Wow, that's... 
Um, and actually, we're probably not too far off the, the literal anniversary, anniversary of it. it. No, probably not. Um, but, you know, it, it's a game that didn't have a lot of developer support past its release. Um, I think less than a, less than three years, I think, is something like that is, is about right. Um, only, only a year or two of patches. So part of, like, Ultima vs. Capcom 3 was actually supposed to be DLC originally for the game. But because of the 2011 Tohoku disaster, it actually got delayed considerably. And with the changes they kept making in that extra time of that delay, they ended up making so many fundamental code revisions that it needed to be a separate piece of software entirely it couldn't be dlc anymore so in in direct contrast to our first game that we talked about today call of duty where neither of us have played it nor is it really in our wheelhouse this is something that both of us have followed you know to varying degrees of closeness for the past 10 years and despite it not having more patches has actually continued to grow and one of the things that we've learned from watching this game for so long is just how snowballs work in a tag fighter of this format so here's a very simple example as we start to transition into why we're talking about this game right with three characters on one side and three characters on the other side you can think of it as your life bar for each character times three, right? Very simply, that's the total amount of life you have across your team. Now, there is a difference between having three characters at 33% life and one character at full life. Because although that averages out to the same amount of health on both teams, there are various factors that, you know, um, dictate having three characters at less health is much better than having less characters at more health for an easy example you've got two assists and you can use one assist per a combo they take a little time to recover so if i have three characters 33 percent life i can easily do an attack while using an assist to keep me safe and then after getting that hit in i can use the other assist to extend my combo by a significant amount possibly meaning that i might be able to kill you in a hit and much more easily get that one hit. Whereas you with no assists don't might not have the resources to well, I mean, 33% life in Marvel, you definitely can kill someone from a hit with that, but you would have to make that guess three times before you would win the match. Whereas I only have to make that guess once with my assists and setup. So going from a strictly statistical numbers sense of the game, you know, like abilities of characters aside, the advantage strongly lies in a team that is full but weaker per character than a team that is one fully healthy character. And so how does this snowball build up? Well, the snowball builds up by, you know, um, at the start of a game, at the start of an encounter in a game, it is in what we call a neutral state where you are just jockeying for position to put yourself in a, in a, <laughs> where you are jockeying for position trying to land a clean hit on your opponent. And by clean, we mean something that converts into a full combo. Because if you get this full combo, you might find yourself in a position where you have an advantage on your opponent because they now have to pick their character up off the ground into you doing an attack. So they have to block. Um, funny thing about a fighting game is it's very rare that you can kill your opponent by blocking. So that means that your opponent can just kind of go nuts on you and put you into a more disadvantageous state. That's actually one thing that's worth noting is that in this game, we have what's called chip death. Yes. So when you block certain attacks, you take a very small amount of damage. And this is exceedingly small. You could not kill someone from 100 to 0 with this unless you have some very specific circumstances that did exist in... At some point. ...the previous version of this game. Yep. But that aside... Um, this means that you can't block forever. You have to stop blocking at some point to get your own hit in because you will die if you keep blocking. And one of the skills in the game is making space to get your hit in, even while you're in a defensive position. 
And so this advantage is already building up, right? And maybe you lose a character. And your next character... it. The game doesn't reset to neutral when you lose a character and your next character comes in. Your next character just kind of jumps in and is like, hi, everyone. How's it going? Potentially getting hit themselves. So the snowball is very real in this game where at the highest level, at least, when you get a hit and you lock down a character or outright kill them, you're in a much better position for the rest of the game because you start to establish this lead in resources. You have numbers on your side now. And it's more about following through than necessarily playing a neutral game again where you're jockeying for position. Mm, Because often that second... So once you kill a character and the second comes in, people describe this in fighting games as a 50-50. Like you can do a mix-up, usually left or right, to try and hit them. So after the first kill, the match could be decided in two 50-50 guesses, potentially. Potentially, yeah. And now to stack on top of that... There is a comeback mechanic, which is part of the reason why we are going to be able to talk about this again later in the year as a negative feedback loop, which is designed to allow a team that is down to come back in the game. However, this mechanic, this comeback mechanic that like gives you a burst of power also exists even before you lose a character and it's not as strong, but it can be used to like cinch it. It can be used to finish off a character. It can be used to like really nail in your advantage and and get a snowball rolling so with, with such strength that the opponent just doesn't have an option to deal with it. And so this is super interesting because this game has effectively an equal playing field at the start. And the moment someone gets a clean hit, they establish a snowball. However, even with all of that said, you are not guaranteed a win, even at the highest levels of play, if you land that hit. There are enough character-specific things that can be done depending on, you know, uh, um, player choices to potentially fight your way out and this mechanic is really powerful like ultimate versus marvel Cap- versus capcom 3 sorry has a strong long legacy of you get to matches someone is nearly dead they have a sliver of life left they use this mechanic x factor and they destroy a team that barely even got a single hit in because it's very easy to take a character from full life to zero life with this mechanic when used correctly now it doesn't always happen like you still have to get that good hit in when you have significant disadvantage but if you do the rewards are exponentially better than they usually would be Anyway, exponentially, about double, probably. <laughs> yeah, which, which in this game does equate to exponentially because that results in a character. Yeah, it takes a combo that would do like Half-Life to killing a character, which, as we've mentioned, is a huge disadvantage. It sets you up for that 50-50 follow-up. So, yeah, very much unlike a lot of the other examples we've talked about, th- this is one of the heaviest snowballs we can think of where it's it's very hard to undo it and it's in a multiplayer context right and the reason it works and is fine as a game design choice is because matches don't last that long a lot of matches in Mar- in ultimate marvel versus capcom 3 are over in you know a minute yeah um, maximum 99 seconds right uh maximum 99 marvel seconds which has been timed out to be something like one close to two seconds per second yeah Oh, really? That beautiful timing. There's a chart somewhere for like as many fighting games as they could find. How close is one in-game second to an actual second? Mm, That's beautiful. Yes. Um, But anyway, so it's really important to talk about the legacy that this game comes from as well a little bit. So Marvel vs. Capcom 3 is unsurprisingly the sequel to Marvel vs. Capcom 2. What a shock, I know. So Marvel vs. Capcom 2 has a long legacy of being a really intense and very, like, a Impressive game if you lose your advantage in it. Comebacks happen, but they're much rarer than they are in Marvel vs. Capcom 3. And this, this X-Factor mechanic, I think, was a very conscious response to 
how snowball-y the previous iteration of this game was. And so in the non-ultimate version of Marvel vs. Capcom 3, X-Factor was maybe a little too strong. It was a significantly stronger thing than it was in Ultimate, which is the most recent version of this specific game. Yeah. And that's that's probably all we really have to say for this episode. So yeah, that's our ultimate word for this episode. Let's transition to our um, ending thoughts. So we talked about positive feedback loops, and while that language positive feedback can sound like it's exclusively about good things, it's really about sort of snowballing effects. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And as a clear example of that, we started with Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 with its killstreak system and how early on each killstreak would lead into the next killstreak, in both increasing in power, but also assisting in the overall winning of the match. In Torchlight 2, we looked at it's positive feedback and how it can be used to encourage fun player behavior, to encourage the behavior the designer wants, which is in Torchlight 2's case, to do lots of attacking, to always be seeking the next combat encounter, and to not just sort of sit back and shore up before each thing. In Darkest Dungeon, we looked at how we can use positive feedback to create negative situations, create bad feelings and situations for players and have them like climb back up from poor things in service to a narrative and thematic idea, which is that in Darkest Dungeon, you must deal with bad situations and that the life of an adventurer is hard and rough. And so these systems with sanity and such really reinforce that and encourage players to maybe abandon people that they may have invested in because they're too far gone to catch back up and so, mm. so on. Fourth game we talked talked about today was Slay the Spire, which is an interesting game because normally it's lauded for you know how well it does all of these different things and provides these kind this variant amount of uh, experiences. But with that variance comes a bit of a weird snowball effect where sometimes it's hard to tell when you've made the right choice or the wrong choice uh, in regards to your deck construction. And, and it's not even clear to the people who are experienced with deck construction at the time of making that choice. And, you know, it just speaks to the design of that game that, yeah, there is a lot to discover even once you've found things that work. And finally, we capped off with uh, one of our all-time favorite games, just in general, Ultimate Marvel vs. Capcom 3, which has one of the heaviest snowball effects that we're aware of, where there is still a comeback from it that's possible. Sometimes you snowball in a game and it's over. Sometimes you hit something so good that it's a matter of playing it out, but unless, you know, and sometimes there literally is no possible scenario where you can come back. But in Ultimate Marvel versus Capcom 3, you can stack the deck in your favor by getting an early advantage. And this advantage is enormous, but your opponent still almost always has a way out. Mm. And so that's a quick look at positive loops, which you can see in all sorts of games in different ways to different effects. And we hope that you really enjoyed them and are going to pay attention in games and maybe spot some things that you haven't seen before. So thank you for listening. As always, if you want to talk to us about anything we discussed, correct us, maybe suggest something that we missed that was a good example, you should tweet at the show at Platinum Pit. We always love talking about these games. If you have any positive feedback for us, that's also great. And you can put that in a review on iTunes or any other service that has podcast reviews. And one of the last positive feedback loops that's important for podcasts is when we have more listeners, that helps us find more listeners. So why not recommend it to a friend? So now that those jokes are dealt with, let's talk about next episode. 
so it's like a formality <laughs> to get these jokes out of the way. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Like yeah, I just saw that, positive feedback and like, wait, I can use fair. that here. That's very fair. But the next episode, we are going to talk about crossovers and how in crossovers games can maintain their mechanical identity. So we're not talking about things like Smash. We're more focused on games that mix mechanics from different games together. So we're going to look at Layton versus Wright, Etrian Mystery Dungeon, Capcom versus SNK2, Cadence of Hyrule, and either Monster Hunter World or Magic the Gathering Puzzle Quest. We're also going to be recording an addendum episode to release sometime in July for our third anniversary coming up. So if you have any thoughts from the episodes in the last year or two or three. Or ever, yeah. Or ever. I don't think we did episodes before three years ago, but if you have feedback about them or questions about them. Or if you just have questions, you just want to show us, like, chuck questions yeah. our way, it's fine. Yeah. Um, we've also stockpiled a few questions we've gotten from various sources over the last year or so. And with that. Thank you for listening. <laughs>